This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth. You plan it out as if it were a video movie production. Every beat is taken care of and you string the beats together. You make sure that people are always on a high right? and that there's never a dull moment. From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. My name is Justin Schreiber, and I'm the CMO at PeopleAI. I am very pleased to be joined today by Renee Bonveni. Renee has a very storied career at some of the great and iconic companies in technology, ranging from Oracle to Symantec, Business Objects, SAP, Salesforce.com. And he was, of course, part of the meteoric rise of Palo Alto Networks, spending a decade as their CMO and currently serving as the Executive Vice President of Strategic Accounts. Renee splits his time between Santa Clara and, of course, Amsterdam, a city that is near and dear to Renee's heart because, of course, he is Dutch, a proud Dutchman. And in fact, Renee, I believe that you you actually drive a vehicle which is orange. Is that is that? Can we confirm that? Uh, yes, Justin, you can confirm it. You can see me on 101 from time to time. Um, the car is not just orange. Uh, a fun anecdote is it actually has decals of the Dutch flag on both sides from front to end. So yes, very Dutch. <laughs> I love it. We will all know now if we're driving next to Renee. Excellent. So along those lines, I'd love to go back in time before we get into the the business part of your life, which is going to be exciting as well. But I want to talk a little bit about some of the, the experiences that shaped you. And if we could go back to 1979 and uh, pick any Friday evening, can you describe where you are and, and what you're doing? Sure. Well, th- you're dating me a bit here, Justin, because I think there's folks on the podcast who will say 1979. Right? I wasn't even born then, or that is so last century. But yeah, I uh, I had just started. I was 18 years old. I had just started my uh, my studies in mathematics and economics uh, in Amsterdam, and um, I was playing a sports um, field hockey, right, which is very popular in my part of the world. Uh, but I would typically at that point I'd have done my practice and would be a DJ in a club somewhere um, in the Netherlands, most likely Amsterdam at that time, because uh, at the ripe old age of 16 years old, I decided that I was going to be on my own and make my own money and do it myself until, of course, I realized that takes money. And, you know, I had found that entertaining folks as a DJ was a lot of fun. So that's where I was in 1979 on a random Friday evening. All right. Can you can you remember any of the clubs that you might have DJed in? What, what, what were the names of those? Oh, the probably the one that is most known is a is a discotheque called Boogaloo in Amsterdam. Boogaloo. So, All right. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's a long time ago, if you think about it. Right. This is 40 plus years ago. 
some of those clubs um, were also ad hoc. Right? Back in those days, there were a lot of pop-ups where uh, festivals and things were organized. And I had the pleasure of playing um, ahead of very famous 70s, 80s bands such as Chic, Earth, Wind & Fire, Casey and the Sunshine Band, Cool and the Gang. And that's it was amazing. Yes. Now, uh, so you've had the opportunity since then to organize your own events. Yes. Tell me a little bit about how those initial forays into music, DJ, interacting with crowds, shaped your vision as a marketer for for building events you know one of the things that i learned over time being a dj uh, and also a coach is positive uh, incentive and optimism are force multipliers meaning that if you use them to enable people to um to make people interested in what you do as boring as it might be right turns out that um doing it that way makes them much more interested in what you do. So as a DJ, of course, you're always looking for that moment that folks step on the dance floor and start to dance. And if they don't, then you have a problem. And the way you do it is you string together things and you plan it out because it's not random. And you you practice, 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 practice so that you turn this into an enchanting experience. And I found that business, and especially when you run events, right, it's the same thing. You plan it out as if it were a, a video movie production, right? And every beat is taken care of, and you string the beats together, and you make sure that people are always on a high, right? And that there's never a dull moment, right, where people are confused about what they're supposed to do on the dance floor, right? And you stand there, so no dead moments. And you know, when I've run events uh, from small ones a few hundred people to very large ones, thousands and thousands of people. I've used those same principles. But even in my marketing approach, it was always about, well, can I tell a story? Can I do something that makes people feel good about the experience? For example, in security, it's very easy to use fear right, and say, well, listen, you're under constant attack. You're going to be compromised. You're going to be breached, of course, unless you buy my products. But that's not really the way that people feel positive about what you offer. Rather, you can turn that around and make it a very positive experience for the folks and then use that experience right, to, of course, <laughs> make your move <laughs> on those individuals. But use always use a positive approach. Always be very, uh, be very cons- orchestrated around the approach. And then make it so that you have a consistency there. Right? One of the things that I've seen many marketers do is be all over the place. Right? And because there's always something um, very current, something very modern that happens. And people tend to forget about the core of the value that they bring to their customers. Right? And they kind of get tired of it. Right? Well, if you think about it, right, if you're a DJ or you're an entertainer, um, People don't get tired of that. Right? The jokes, the, the music, all of that, that stuff, it's orchestrated. And if you are able to assemble it well, you can do that. And it was a very important lesson. Right? Now, the other part is it, preparation is everything. Right? It's, it's, um, you, you could potentially use right, um, your gut right, to do a bunch of things. Turns out right, that, um, you, yeah, that, that's an important part. But you cannot just go on your gut. Right? You need to prepare, you need to plan, and you need to orchestrate. 
Right, right. There's, uh, and you run your own shows or, or as a CMO, even you would run your own shows as well. You were the director. You didn't, you didn't outsource I, that. That, that is correct. I would have, I would have operators that would do lighting and audio and um, AV and everything else. But I would sit there at the, at the table, the tech table, right? the famous table that is always in the back right? and nobody sees in a million buttons. But I would sit there and I would orchestrate the show. Right? I would call the show. I would orchestrate the show because to me, um, whether this is a, an end user event or it's a, an employee event, um, I wanted to make sure right, that it was a show. And that kind of sounds odd, but you know, if you consider it a show, then yeah, you need to own it. Right? And I've never been a big believer in outsourcing things. If they're really important, I think you should try to do them yourself. And this was a good example of, yeah, if, if it had to be great, then yeah, you, and I would, yeah. And till the very end, I would always bring my own music even right? because I thought about it. Right? And so for weeks on, I was planning the music, right? So, and not just the, the walk on or the walk off, but also what music do we play when there's a break and what music do we play when people walk into the, into the venue, all of that was planned. Right? And that's how I always considered uh, doing events. And, you know, it, it's very typical of my marketing approach, right? I plan these things. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's a fascinating concept that marketers need to focus on the energy of the audiences. And it's really a conversation that I haven't heard a lot of people dive into. But the reality is that we're all human. We're all motivated and driven uh, by different factors. And to the extent that marketers can help to um, engage, to excite, um, to involve an audience, it becomes so much easier than to educate and share what you have to offer. Well, you know, we're, we're not, we're first and foremost, the cheerleaders, right? I have a saying that says, if the marketer doesn't smile, then something is really wrong, right? So we, we have to always have that positive attitude. Uh, and then we're entertainers, right? Um, in that we bring stories, but we make people feel good about those stories, and so bringing that story can be taking all kinds of shapes. It can be written stories. It can be vocal stories. It can be videos. It can be all kinds of things as long as you get the story across. Right? Yeah. And, you know, people remember things in different ways. Uh, some people are very visual. Some people are not. It doesn't matter. Um, I tend to think that most people uh, prefer to see things instead of just hear things. Um so I always try to come up with very fun visual metaphors right, to explain something that is inherently complicated right, because we all sell very complicated technology, but do it in such a way that people not only recognize what the technology does, but also recognize themselves right, in in those visualizations. Right? They, they are part of the story themselves because yeah, yeah. It's, it's one thing to understand the technology. It's much better for folks to know what they can do with the technology and what it enables them to do. Yeah. So clearly you're, you're in touch with your audience, the emotive nature of what marketing can do. What I also find interesting though about your background, Renee, is that you are a self-described mathematician and scientist. Tell me a little bit about where that comes from and how the worlds of math and science and psychology, music, how that all intersects. Yeah, well, according to the psychologist, it shouldn't because typically these two things don't blend. <laughs> Remember those videos? Will it blend? Typically, they don't blend. Um, typically, um, marketing was much more the creative brain and 
Um, other parts of business were more the scientific brain. It, I, I think I got lucky somehow in my genes that um, I, had, I was always very curious how things worked and why things worked. Um, I had the ability to tell stories around it right? um, so that I could break it down and make it easy to understand and make people feel good about it and, and want it. But I also wanted to know how things worked. And so uh, my uh, my original career goal was to become an archaeologist. Um, nothing to do with, that was very much the creative side of me, right? Because I envisioned being in the field somewhere and digging for dinosaurs. Uh, turns out that only 0.1% of archaeologists actually dig for dinosaurs. The 99.9% teach other kids that want to be archaeologists to become archaeologists. This is what one of my science teachers told me in high school. So he said, yeah, don't do that. Go do economics and mathematics and you'll be fine. You can always become one, an archaeologist that is, but get a better foundation because you may not like going into teaching for the rest of your life. Um, funny coming from a teacher, by the way. Um, and you know that's how I got into economics and mathematics. Um, mathematics was not something I found very interesting. In high school, I was actually not even very good at it. But what became interesting in college was that the application of mathematics uh, became obvious. And the first time that happened to me was um, in the very early computer classes that were being held in college. Right? Remember, this is 1979. Right? There, there wasn't a lot of that. But I got involved in technology that came out of UC Berkeley, both the Unix operating system, an Ingress database technology, a relational database technology, the C programming language. And I wanted to understand how it worked. And the relational databases, um, you know, they worked on very mathematical principles. So I wanted to understand it. So I dove in right, with my math um, courses. We dove into what is called relational algebra, relational calculus, set theory, number theory. And uh, gradually, that became so interesting that uh, I decided right, to do both economics, which is, in many cases, also applied science, applied mathematics, um, but also organizational technology and what have you, um, and mathematics. And, you know, I've always been on the kind of in the middle of, I want to understand how things work. I'm also very interested in what they enable people to do. Right? Um, a lot of B2B marketing right, is not very interesting because it focuses way too much on how things work and not so much about what you can do with the technology. And databases are a great example. Right? Uh, I fundamentally believe that most problems known to mankind are in need of a database. Right? <laughs> People AI couldn't exist without a database. Right? Uh, websites couldn't exist without databases. Um, you look at just about anything, right? it, it requires a, a store of data, not just for transactional purposes, right? which was what systems were used for in the 80s, right? book a flight or buy something or get paid a salary. No, it's actually to find things that are non-trivial, right? that take a lot of data points, right? graphs as we call them. Well, that mathematics, the mathematics behind graphs and the mathematics behind people AI right, existed when I was in college. It was just not operable because there, there was no infrastructure that right, big enough to test out these algorithms, right? So um, RNNs, recurring neural networks, right? Markov uh, chains, all these techniques, right? Mathematically were known, 
development. It was just, there was no infrastructure to do this. So it, to me, it became interesting to see, can we, can we combine the technology right, um, with the outcomes right, that we then can do with that technology? Right? So if I have all this data, can I, for example, put a sales rep right, into a better position with the customer? Right? Um, can I nudge customers right, to do something? Now, remind you, I'm talking about the 80s and early 90s here, right? where nobody was online yet. <laughs> um, but these ideas started to form in my head. And so I focused a lot on enabling businesses to build things right, using database technology. But it all comes down from this mathematical background is that it is possible to build technology that can do this. And then my storytelling ability to say, well, hey, what can you do with this? Well, you can build a pet store on this thing called the internet. And and bridging that turned out to be kind of the, well, not a secret ingredient, but it's one of the things that I was able to do really well, right? Combine the deep understanding of the technology and the logic behind it and the stories that you need to compel people. You you stood in an interesting position in that you had the the background and, and the foundation to really understand the potential of the technology. But at the same time, as a storyteller, you understood the application of that technology. And you could you could describe that in a way that really resonated with the end user. I love that idea because I think, especially in tech, more and more of the role of the modern marketer is someone that isn't simply creating pretty ads someone that has the mind that can get into the technology, understand its beauty, its nuances, but then translate that into a set of scenarios, use cases that someone who may not have the same depth can really appreciate. Yeah, you know, I, I talk about a trinity, right? As, as a modern marketer, CMO or a modern marketer, you have to, you have to really uh, master both the, the story all of the demand that you need to create around the story and all of the enablement right, to enable the your entire ecosystem right, to consume the story. And, you know, it's a trinity because none of them are independent. Right? Uh, the world's greatest stories will never stick if nobody tells them. Right? Um, the If you can't turn it into a demand machine where you have sales or marketing capacity to then consume it, to generate it and so forth, it doesn't matter, right? Um, you can have a great sales team, but with a lousy story, they're not going to be successful. And so it, it it all intertwines. But it is very important to understand that at the end of the day, that right, it's the it's the CMO right, that needs to drive that. Right? You, you you cannot necessarily outsource these things. Right? It, I think it is critically important that the uh, that the CMO drives those three. And, and combines them right, into the the core of what a business is all about. Great. All right, Renee, you are a very quotable person. I, I actually uh, frequently quote you. And one of the favorite things that you said um, that I'm, I'm uh, uh, very appreciative of is the things you get rewarded for are not the things that you're supposed to do. It's the unexpected things. Yes. It's a great concept. So you worked for Larry Ellison for a while. Um, tell me a little bit about how your experience with Larry shaped that that concept of the unexpected things are, is where you get rewarded. The 
<clears throat> when you when in your career um, you you want to get ahead, uh, certainly if you're earlier on in your career, uh, you you typically um, you typically want to understand what it is that makes you get ahead in your career. Right? So you you have you're going to ask folks around you, your manager, maybe others, say now what does it take to get ahead here? Right? And um, without saying those words, it was very obvious in my conversations with Larry Allison and 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 um, some of his management that how they got there themselves was doing the unexpected. Right? Um, if you look at their backgrounds, right, they were not the. It was not a logical consequence of their background right, to be in the position at Oracle. Um, if you looked at what what made them um, so good at the things, it wasn't necessarily the thing that they were responsible for. It was things they did that um, <clears throat> that became life changing for Oracle. Right? But if you look at their job description, you would say, well, that's odd because they're not necessarily responsible for that. And so I got that firsthand, right, um, where, uh, with Larry Allison, where um, I-, I was curious to understand how I could get to a, a VP, senior VP level uh, at Oracle. And um, I said, but I'm, am I not doing everything you want? And he said, yeah, so what? <laughs> and and it, it made me realize immediately that I, I should have listened more closely to what I'd heard so far. Is it's not the I can get this I can be the best database marketer in the world. Right? Not by the way, not database marketer in the sense of using a database, but actually marketing the Oracle database. Um, but that's what I'm supposed to do, right? So shame on me if I'm not the best. Right? Um, but what can I do right, that is going to surprise everybody? Well, it's actually using the Oracle database for something that nobody knew it could be used for and doing something for Oracle we didn't know before. And so that's when I, that's when I got into a, uh, uh, a process of thinking about what that could be. And it turned out that, and, and I'm not talking about mid nineties, uh, right. When I came to the U S uh, for Oracle was to use um, Oracle's technology to drive our business right, uh, and use the internet. Right, which was back then still very, very minimal, right, to transform Oracle's business, right, uh, both on how people learn about Oracle, how they evaluate Oracle, how they buy Oracle. And uh, that became um, a very important um, part of how I became eventually right, the leader in Oracle. Uh, nobody was expecting me to take all that responsibility. But the moment I said, I think I know something, right, was also the moment that Larry said, well, then go do it, right? And that was that was a very important lesson in my life. And yeah, but ultimately, right, would I have gotten there doing my very best on the, on the database marketing side? Sure, right, at some point, maybe. Right? But it, it were those things and that continue to be the case in my career that nobody expected. And so my advice is right, um, find one of those things as a marketer right, where you can have significant impact right, and it may not be something trivial, right, but go find one of those things because you'll see that that is what's going to make a, a hell of a difference. I think the key there is you said find one of those things. Oftentimes people feel it's an overwhelming charge to do the unexpected because they assume I got to do a lot of unexpected things, but I think your story is 
find one thing that you can do that's extraordinary. Yes. Use that to make your mark and uh, the rest takes care of itself. Yes, exactly. It, it, it's not the quantity, right? It is, it is the impact it has on the business, right? And, yeah. you know, it, and by the way, the, the one piece of advice, right, especially for the more mature CMOs, it's not, don't repeat something you've already done, right? Because that's not unexpected, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe the company you're going to join or you are at now right, doesn't have an online community. But you know that's not a that's not one of those things right, that would count today as the unexpected. Right? Uh, figure something out that truly is unexpected. Yeah, and, that's, that, yeah, that's great. I love that. All right, so you are. I think you relish um, the role of, of provocateur uh, and and throwing out statements that are, uh, <laughs> to say the least, unexpected. I want to yes. roll through a couple of the the statements, at least that I'm aware of, and maybe have you. Uh, elaborate on some of those. You once did a presentation to a group of MBA students and you titled the presentation 10 Reasons Why I Would Never Hire an MBA. Yes. Tell me tell yes. me a little bit about that one. Yeah, yeah. The so my um my the point I was trying to make is that um I am as as proud as you may be of your title right, that you got in school or the school you went to um in the end it really matters how you can adapt to a situation right, that you're faced with. Right? Um, most MBA students, for example, uh, believe that because they learned a formula in school, right, that that formula will work in the environment um, that they are going to be working in. My point with those students was, listen, I, um, I get it. Right? I, I understand you, you're very smart. You, you're in Stanford. You're in high school of business. Right? So, of course, you have all the opportunity in the world. But let me tell you 10 things that I disagree with that you learn. Right? And so I had to provoke a little bit. So that's what I said, 10 reasons why not why I would never hire an MBA. Because I said, well, here are 10 things that if we would have done them in Palo Alto Networks in the early days, right, um, then we probably right, would not have been where we are right now. Right. And I used examples, which were back then, and I'm talking 2012, 13, 14, um, outsourcing right, support to uh, India right, or uh, putting manufacturing in China. Right? Those were things that in MBA class were very hot topics back then, right? because economically, those make a lot of sense. Right? And, you know, um, or pricing models, right? Um, I had like I said, 10 examples. And my point was, listen, the, the, it is so unique, right? Um, um, the, what makes a company successful? So many things have to be right. You cannot become formulaic, right? Everything needs to be thought out and everything is, right? it depends on each other, right? If, if, if you, for example, sell security products, then having them built in, the, in China is not a virtue, right? Now, there may be other things right, that can be built very well in China, but not security products. Right? So it's not as black and white as you think it is. Right? Um, so, yeah. Now, the, at the end, right, of course, the folks, this, they agree with my points. Right? Of course, the question at the end is always, well, if I am willing to learn about your business, would you hire me? And I said, of course, I'm going to hire you. <laughs> right? But the point is, don't come to me again with with a formula that you think is going to yeah. work for my business. Right? Reinvent yourself, right, to be the best you can be in the business. Right? Because in the end of the, the end of the day, if I have to choose between somebody super smart, right, from a great school that isn't willing to to 
to adapt. And somebody who is not nearly as well-schooled as you guys, but is has working experience and is willing to adapt, I'll choose the latter, right? Always. There is a there's a contiguous thread that I'm picking up as I talk to to various CMOs. I was actually just talking to Chris Kohler, uh, CMO over at Box. He's actually going to be on the show a little bit later on. Said virtually the exact same thing. I look when I hire someone for a lifelong learner, curiosity, someone that's willing willing to dig in, but also someone that's willing to continually reinvent themselves and not rely on the formula that got them to the point that they're at. Yep. All right. One of the other one of the other things that uh, you have said, this is perhaps the most controversial of all. <laughs> yeah. The CMO um, or the marketer must be absolutely truthful. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, um, I, I, so I don't know how that can be controversial, Justin. I, I, I get my <laughs> reputation. <laughs> so here's the thing. Right? Um if you truly believe in enchanting your customers, right, you're taking a long-term view. I think having the customer become successful with what you offer is a very important part of a strategy. Right? It, it, that has to be part. It's not controversial. Right? So in, in that realm, right, what do you tell a customer? What do you tell the market about who you are and what you do and how you compare? Well, if that is not truthful, the customer is going to find out. Right? There is no more place to hide. Uh, there, none, right? zero. Everything that we do, good or bad or indifferent, is going to be known. So my philosophy has been, well, since that's the case, right, let's just be completely straight um, and, and truthful up front and even right, use it to our advantage. Right? Meaning, um, what if I actually am a bit too truthful? Now, that is a bit of a weird thing to say, right? because I do believe that truth is binary. It's, it is or it isn't. But what if you, when you release a product, underspec it a little bit? Right? So there's actually things it does, either speed or a throughput or whatever, that is better than what you spec it at. Well, that becomes enchanting. Right? If, if I buy something right, that says it's spec at 80, Right? and it delivers 85, then we win. Right? That is a great outcome for the customer. Um, if I know that in lab circumstances, I can get it to run at 100, right? but that is so exotic, right? but it can be done, and I deliver it as 100, and the customer gets 85, they're pissed off. <laughs> Same product. right? So what should you do? Right? I think I think if you know that it is highly unlikely that the customer is going to get those results, right, I think it's actually much better to not even say 85, but to say 80, right? Because then the experience that the customer has right, is great, straight out of the right, out of the shoot. And I think that's the philosophy you've had. I, I don't think you can hide. I don't think you always have to enchant. And then finally, I, I do believe that this is a long game. Right, so you 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 don't just have to tell the truth once; you have to do it all the time, right? And you and, and the worst thing is that if you can't remember your lies, right? And so it it becomes the relationship we're going to have with our customers is going to take they're going to last for a long time. So the the good news is you never have to think if you tell the truth. You don't have to remember things if you tell the truth, right? It's just the truth. 
And that I think is, you know, I, I don't think it's controversial. I know that marketing has a reputation right, of putting everything a little bit in a different perspective and beautifying things. I, I think the story that you can tell of what people can do with the product, yeah, you can you can tell great stories, enabling stories, right? But um, that doesn't mean that you need to lie or be imprecise about what a product is and who it's for and what it can do. It's it's not surprising if you look at Palo Alto Network. Uh, I think NPS is through the roof there. Uh, customers are very satisfied, very happy. I definitely think there's a correlation between that level of satisfaction and the integrity and the honesty that sits behind the messages that that you and the rest of the, rest of the marketing organization have crafted. Yeah, you know that it that goes in that, that goes in both directions, right? It's it's what do you tell people they're gonna do, and then how do you how do you handle when it doesn't go as you expected? Right? So NPS, which in our case is north of seventy. Is a reflection both on that initial experience, but then the ongoing experience. And like I said, it, it, by the way, you don't always shine when things are great. Right? You you actually you, you have a better chance of shining even more when things don't go so well. Right? When something doesn't go quite with the product, the implementation. Right? So I think you always have an opportunity to do that with your customer. And you know, the the more truthful you are, right? the more transparent you are, right? the the better off you are. That's just my philosophy. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, Renee, the time has flown by. We uh, we've landed where you are currently, Palo Alto Networks. Maybe my yes. final question: <clears throat> the story of Palo Alto Networks, which is a phenomenal story, one of meteoric rise and growth, and yeah. your own story are very much intertwined. As you look back on the the eleven years that you've you've spent mm-hmm. there, what are you the most proud of? Uh, I'll do one more quotable. Um, to put it into perspective, I always said that B2B marketing and B2B business should stand for boring to boring. Right? The, the things that we do are inherently not very sexy. Right? Uh, the folks that we interact with, right, that operate our technology, that buy it, evaluate it, right, they're pretty boring. And, and they will admit it. Right? The thing is, you can make something that is very important, right, infrastructure, right, security, and make that matter. Right? And then build a company that matters, where folks say, well, if it were to go away, right, there would be a hole in the industry. Right? I would miss it. Because right? very few companies actually get there, right? where they would say, well, oh, man, that it, there's, there's now is a hole in my strategy. Right? And uh, you know, the, the, the ability to help out these organizations right, and governments and service providers to not only protect themselves, but to embrace the cloud and to embrace uh, the mobility and to embrace SaaS and all of these things, that's amazing. Right? Scaling it from nothing right, to the largest cybersecurity company is great, um, but we didn't get there just because we were good executors right, and operators. We got there because our belief was always if the customers are successful, uh, that becomes a force multiplier because then uh, the everything else will take care of itself, right? Our stock price, uh, the, everything, right? Because uh, as long as you deliver great products where customers are highly satisfied, you do that. And I think being there to shepherd the story and to shepherd the go-to-market strategy and the enablement has been incredible. And, you know, that will never come back again for me. Right? But I don't think there's ever going to be a better CMO job, certainly not for me. 
but in the future, but having done it, yeah, that that is something I'm very, very proud of. Well, Renee, it's been a pleasure to talk this afternoon. And I'd personally like to thank you on behalf of many, many people for the companies that you've built, but most importantly, for the legacy that you've left as a marketer and how you've really helped to advance the discipline. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much, Justin. I really enjoyed it. All right. And until next time, uh, please join us again for another great podcast where we explore the legends of sales and marketing and the great contributions that they've made to the fields of sales and marketing.